The following lecture was delivered at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Moshe Brisky presents his lecture, Our Perfectly Imperfect Lives. You know, there's a famous expression, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I find that statement to be very profound and very true. We know it's true because like most of real wisdom, the same theme is actually discussed in the Mishnah. What does this mean, the perfect is the enemy of the good? It means that there are many situations in people's lives wherein they strive for perfection. But if it's not achievable, they won't bother to at least make the situation better. So the perfect becomes the enemy of the good. There are people who won't start a project or any endeavor if they don't think they can finish it. So why bother start? They won't attempt things if they don't think they have the resources or the capacity to do it as well as they feel it needs to be done. So they don't start. And the result is nothing gets done. In other words, this standard of perfection prevents people from making any change at all that could really make their lives and the lives of others better. The perfect becomes the enemy of the good. And this has its basic in Talmudic wisdom. There's a statement in Ethics of Our Fathers that it is not your job to finish the task, but you're not free from trying. And we each have to do our effort, put in our effort, whether we complete it, whether we finish it, whether we do it to perfection, that's not your business. Maybe you won't finish the project. Maybe you won't do it as well as you think you should, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't start and it doesn't mean you shouldn't try. Here's the thing. This world by its very nature is imperfect. And guess what? People by their very nature are not perfect. And therefore to expect that you'll achieve perfection in this world, in any endeavor is unrealistic. We set ourselves up with that goal of perfection, and we set ourselves up to fail. As it says in the book of Tehillim, Hashemayim Shemayim Lashem, the heavens belong to God. But the earth he gave to man, the realm of heaven is where there's perfection. God is perfect. But this earth, this world he gave to human beings, and the human being is not perfect. This misguided expectation of perfection can affect so many areas of our lives, from the most mundane to the most important decisions a person makes in life. I have an older brother, his name is Shalom Bear. When he became of marriageable age, he was introduced to many fine young ladies as shidduchim, as a possible match, a prospect for marriage. In some instances after he dated them, it was clear that it wasn't a match. Sometimes, however, he saw a lot of good in their person, but one issue troubled him, or one little thing troubled him, and he was conflicted. So when faced with such dilemmas, he would write a note to the Lubavitcher Rebbe and ask for advice. What should he do? Now, generally, when a person was undecided on such matters, 
the Rebbe wouldn't opine on whether or not he should marry this person. He would simply try to bring some clarity to the situation. This went on for a few years, with my brother Schallenberg slowly becoming one of the older eligible bachelors in the community. One year on his birthday, and in those days when Chabad was smaller, you got to go into the Rebbe for a private audience on your birthday. He has on his birthday this private audience with the Rebbe. And it's customary in an audience of Yechidis, you would write a note to the Rebbe and give the Rebbe your note as to what's on your mind. And he presented this note to the Rebbe detailing the latest dating experience that he had and the issues that he had and hoping that the Rebbe would address it during this encounter. The Rebbe reads the note, looks up at my brother, and I'll say the Yiddish words he used. He started with, Shonyorin Lang. It's already many years now that you've been writing to me about these issues. A mensch, a person, is nicht a computer. Now this is in the 70s where computers meant they took up a room this size. A mensch is nicht a computer. A mensch can design perfect. A person can't be perfect. Undu alain, and you yourself, Bisnish perfect. You yourself, you're not perfect. You're looking for perfection. We're not perfect, we're human beings. There was a pause during which my brother swallowed hard. And the Rebbe smiled at him. And the Rebbe said, of course, at Chabad, we don't give musr. We don't admonish anyone. I'm not admonishing you. I'm just bringing to light something you need to think about. We're not perfect. I guess the Rebbe didn't want him to feel that he came on too strong, so he lightened it. Now, whether the Rebbe came on too hard or not, suffice it to say that shortly thereafter, my brother met and married the most wonderful woman, my dear sister-in-law, Sarah, with whom they've been happily married for 48 blessed years with many amazing children and grandchildren. A mensch is nicht a computer. A human being is not perfect. Don't seek perfection in others. Don't seek perfection in yourself. You know the story, this recently divorced middle-aged woman, she moves back to her hometown. She's hoping to start life all over again. A few weeks later, she's booking a dentist appointment. She was surprised to recognize the name of the dentist as someone that she went to school with. I remember him. He was this good-looking guy. Wow, charming guy. 25 years ago, I really remember this guy. She walks into the dentist's office and she realizes this is not the guy. This guy was uh, had a stomach. He was bald. He was gray. That's not the guy. This is not the dashing kid from high school. And the dentist does his work. Ah, she's walking out still. Am I curious to know? Did you go to Southridge High School? He said, yeah, I did. I graduated in 87. Oh my gosh, you were in my class. He says, that's interesting. What class did you teach? <laughs> you see, 
being blind as we are to our own flaws and imperfections, we expect from others the perfection we think we possess, when in fact it's a lie. They're not perfect and neither are you. I suggest that this problem has been exasperated by the expectations cultivated by the lifestyle of our current society. Because today we can get absolute perfection in so many things in life. You buy a car today and it has just about every gadget you could have possibly dreamt of, right? It talks to you, <laughs> it takes instructions from you, it could park itself. The hardest thing when we had to take a road test was parallel parking. Hey, just tell the car, park yourself. <laughs> they have the technology today, the car would drive itself, take me to Honolulu, I'll figure out how to fly itself. We have perfection in, in, in automobiles. It gets better than that. You have perfection in your cell phone. Your cell phone can just about do everything. There's nothing you can't do with your phone. You can order a pizza and a washing machine at the very same time. You can hire an Uber to take you to Cleveland. You can buy futures on the stock market. You could research the population of Sri, Sri Lanka. Just with swiping, you don't even have to push a button anymore. You swipe here, you swipe there. If you don't know how to do that, ask your grandchild. They know how to do it. Perfection. And if you don't like your iPhone 13, don't worry, very soon September's coming around, iPhone 14 will be here. You'll get even a more perfect one. You get perfection today in coffee, okay? Go into a Starbucks coffee shop today. You listen to what these customers say to these poor people behind the counter. I want this chai latte cappuccino. I want a shot of espresso, a spritz of that syrup, a half a spritz of that syrup. I want two millimeters of foam on the top. I want to make sure you got that little heart on the top of it, and it has to be 214 degrees Fahrenheit. You think the person behind the counter would say, get out of here, you nuts. She smiles. She says, sure, coming right up. Because we expect perfection now in everything. Your car is perfect, your coffee is perfect, your cell phone is perfect. And so you have the expectation that your spouse has to be perfect too. And your friends have to be perfect, and your children have to be perfect. And as much as we would like everyone around us to be perfect, and everything to be exactly as we think, it doesn't work that way. Whether it's in our relationships, or our job, or our personal aspirations, or even our spiritual growth. We have to get away from the Starbucks and iPhone mentality. The Medrash tells a story about two different people entering a study hall. One takes a look and says, everyone involved in study, and they're studying the Talmud, and they're debating back and forth, and he says, wow, I want to be a part of that. Can I sit at any table? Can I join? And the headmaster asks, do you have any knowledge? No, I don't even know the Hebrew alphabet. Well, if you don't know the Hebrew alphabet, you need to start somewhere. You've got to start, learn the alphabet, then learn the Chumash, then the Mishnah. And at some point, you'll be able to get here. And the fellow says, are you nuts? I'm going to start all of that just to be able to sit here? And he walks out. Says the Medrash, that's a fool. The other person takes a look at the same room and is told exactly the same thing. He says, so show me the room where I learned the alphabet. That, says the Medrash, is a wise person. But he's only studying the Hebrew alphabet. He's only studying first grade material. Yes, but he's a scholar. Why? Because eventually, if you start somewhere, you'll grow. But if you think it all happens with perfection immediately, it doesn't work that way. The ability today to be that wise person, to start from somewhere, is available at your fingertips. You think about it. Torah scholarship, knowledge, is more accessible today than at any point in our history. 
There is nothing you can't master. There is nothing you can't learn today. Whatever subject it may be, it's available to you. And COVID really proved it to all of us in the sense that we were able to take all of our classes, all of our lectures, and put it out there on YouTube and on Zoom, and everyone in the world is able to study. You can listen to any particular subject on Judaism in the comfort of your home. Start somewhere. It's available to you. But you say, but I don't know much. But start. Don't worry about being perfect. Don't worry about being the greatest scholar. Start somewhere. On January 1st, on New Year's 2020, an incredible event took place at the MetLife Stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey. 90,000 Jews came together for what was the 13th Siam Hashas. It was a celebration of the completion of the study of the entire Talmud through a program called Daf Yomi, studying one page of Talmud a day. For those not aware of what the Daf Yomi program is, it started in 1923, and it captures throughout its seven and a half year period of time that you'd study 2,711 pages of the Talmud. And if you study one page a day, you will complete it in seven and a half years. Now, it started off slowly in 1923, but it's gained its momentum tremendously, especially with the Art Scroll Talmud coming out, the Steinsaltz Talmud coming out. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Jews throughout the world have begun to study Daf Yomi. And at the seum, at the culmination of the last round of study in the year 2020, they rented out MetLife Stadium, Giant Stadium, 90,000 Jews gathered together on New Year's to have their own New Year's party, the completion of the entire Talmud. Well, the very next day, January 2nd, 2020, this Jewish educator, his name was Rabbi Benjamin Ginsberg. He's driving from his home in Toms River, New Jersey, to give a class in Brooklyn, New York. He was a little bit late. He was trying to make up some time on the Garden State Parkway. He's weaving in and out of traffic. And suddenly he sees lights flashing behind him. <laughs> he was going a little too fast. He was pulled over. The officer approaches the car. Rabbi Ginsberg rolls down the window. Policeman takes a look, looks at him again. Let me ask you a question. Yes, officer. Did you study your page today? <laughs> did, I, did I what? Did you study your page today? Page, page. The page of Talmud, did you study it today? And the officer says, I was assigned yesterday to the MetLife Stadium. And your people <laughs> were studying the pages. So I'm asking you, did you do your page today? So Rabbi Ginsburg, who in fact was part of the Daf Yomi program, who did study the page every day, said, in fact, I didn't get to it yet today, but it's on my schedule, well, I'll do. So the officer says, if you promise me that you'll do your page today, I'm going to let you go with just a warning. And the officer sees this stunned expression in Rabbi Ginsburg's face, and he said, yesterday, my fellow officer, my partner that was with me, was so moved by what he saw that he said he wants to convert to Judaism. Now, I know he's not going to do it, but I was shocked by him. What do you mean you want to convert to Judaism? And he says, listen here. Can you imagine? Look at what we're looking at over here. People are studying a page, a text, a day that they've been studying now for thousands of years, and they're so excited about it, even though it's been around for thousands of years. 
Now, we have been assigned to all types of wild parties out there, all types of New Year parties out there, and we know what those parties are like. They get together, they begin to drink, they get very wild, it gets very rowdy, and at some point we're called to break up the fights. We went to this event yesterday. 90,000 people. No drinking, no swearing, no cursing, no fighting. They're celebrating studying. It's an amazing people. And another buddy of mine said, you know, this place used to be called Giant Stadium, but today it was a stadium of giants. That, my friends, is indeed what we are when we immerse ourselves in Torah. And it's really something to see that in our day and age, people in their 50s, in their 60s, even in their 70s and 80s, begin to study, whether it's the Talmud, or take classes, or take courses. They're not feeling perfect, but they want to start. We have to start somewhere. As a wise man once said, you don't have to be great to start but you have to start in order to be great. So we all have to start. A few years ago, a man by the name of Noam Wasserman, he's a former professor at Harvard Business School, he wrote a book. The book is called Life is a Startup, in which he writes about various handcuffs that shackle people in life, that keep you stuck in these mediocre situations because they're afraid to let go of wherever they are in life. And he gives this powerful example of his own life. He was invited at some point in his career to become the founder of an institution at USC. It was a good, it was a good offer. But what was holding him back was this. His email address at the time was noam at hbs.edu, HBS standing for Harvard Business School. That's a prestigious email address to have. If he was to take the job offer and move to USC, it would be noam at usc.edu. That's nice, but it's not HBS. And he writes how he struggled with this. Career-wise, it would be a great move. Potential would be great but I would give up those three letters in my email address. And that was holding him back. And finally, he writes, he did it. And looking back, he writes, rather than being one of 200 professors at Harvard, I'm the founder now of my own institution. Noam Wasserman is the widely respected dean of the Cy Simmons Business School. And if it wasn't for him being able to get over giving up three letters in his email address, the life that he has now would never have been. The handcuffs of complacency, the fear of the unknown keeps people stuck. You don't want to take risks. We want our lives to be perfectly safe and sheltered, sealed, nothing rocking the boat, shaking things up. It's this approach that we have, and it makes sense. But then again, staying frozen in place is not good either. At some point, we look at our lives and we realize Nothing ventured, nothing gained. President Kennedy said there are risks and costs to actions, but they are far less than the long-range risks of comfortable inaction. In fact, sometimes these handcuffs of complacency, the fear of the unknown, 
can be rather deadly and catastrophic. Several years before my father passed away, we finally got him to tell his life story on video. He never opened up about the war years until agreeing to these two days of, of videotaping his biography, his story of how he survived. And we all got to see this video only after he passed away. And on the tape he relates that after months of trying to escape the Germans from one end of Poland to the other following the outbreak of the war, he and many of his friends somehow got reunited in Vilna, Lithuania. And while there, they actually set up a new yeshiva. Even as the war was going on, even as the Nazi advance raged on. And during the early part of them being in Lithuania, they were still able to send and receive messages to and from the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson. And the Rebbe would continuously guide them as to what to do physically, spiritually. And at one point, I got this note from the previous Rebbe. And he writes to them that if the time would come that they would no longer be able to correspond with him due to the war and they needed answers to critical questions, they should go to the Amshin of a Rebbe who was there with them, Rabbi Shimon Shalom Kalish. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe and the Amshin of the Rebbe were very close and they had a deep respect for one another. And so he's saying for any urgent question you ask him and whatever he says, is coming from me. While they're there in Vilna, the reports of Nazi brutality were getting more and more ominous, and one day it became to light that there was a diplomat. Some of you may know this story. An angel of a man living in Lithuania by the name of Chiyun Sugihara. He was the Japanese diplomat of the consulate, and that he would be willing to issue visas for Jews wishing to escape to Japan. The hope was that they would be able to get this visa and get to Japan, and then, of course, they believed that America would open the door for them, and they were able to make their way here. Unfortunately, the latter part of the story took five years for the United States to let these students in. But while they're there in Lithuania, there is the great debate that's taking place amongst the Jews in Lithuania. Do we take the visa and go, or do we stay here? There were many that have the opinion that here we are, we're studying Torah here. We have a yeshiva here. Why should we leave? The war hasn't affected us yet. Let's stay. The Chabad Hasidim, following the instructions that they received, went to the Amshin of a Rebbe and asked the Rebbe what they should do. And he said, every second here is Sakonos Nefashos. Every second here, your lives are at risk. If we can get a visa out of here, we take the visa and we go. We don't know if we will be successful. They would need to go on a train throughout 12 time zones of the Soviet Union. Would they survive that trip? Would Japan let them in? Many questions. But to stay here, he said, it would be too dangerous and put our lives at risk. His instruction, take the visa if you can get it and go. As my father tells this story, he begins to cry. And he says, those who took the visa survived. Those who didn't. And he looked up to heaven and he said, 
they went straight to heaven. There are times when inaction can be hazardous, where we don't want to shake things up. We don't want to make that move. Sometimes we have to make the move. Sometimes we have to get up and we have to go. Then there are other handcuffs we have in life, the handcuffs of the fear of failure. We all experience this in some type of way. We're afraid to fail. By nature, we don't like failing. But because of that fear of failure, we never try. I don't want to have to swallow that bitter peel of failure, the embarrassment perhaps of failure. You don't really know where things will go unless you try. Thomas Edison, the inventor of the light bulb, once was asked how it felt to have failed a thousand times before he invented a successful light bulb. He answered, I didn't fail a thousand times. The light bulb was an invention with a thousand steps. And with that outlook, that's how you succeed. Now, with all due respect to the Kobe Bryant fans that may be in the room and the LeBron James fans in the room, arguably the best basketball player to ever play the game, the GOAT as they call it, was Michael Jordan of the Chicago Bulls. Some of you will agree, some of you will not agree. So allow me to share a quote from Rabbi Michael Jordan. He said, I have missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. 26 times I was entrusted to make the winning shot that I missed. I failed over and over again in my life, and that is why I succeeded. Because I got back up again. The fear of failure didn't deter me. The same is true in all great achievers throughout history. Did you know that Abraham Lincoln lost eight elections before he won the presidency? that J.K. Rowling was destitute before she wrote the first Harry Potter book? Do you know how many cars Elon Musk tried to make before he came up with the Tesla? In his words, if you're not failing, you're not innovating enough. Of course, as Jews, we don't need celebrities and athletes and entrepreneurs or presidents to teach us the lesson. King Solomon says it. Sheva yipol tzaddik v'kom, the righteous person falls seven times and gets right back up. The meaning of the statement is not despite the fact that the tzaddik falls down, he gets back up. It's because he falls down that he achieves the greatness, because he then gets back up. The very process of failing and of falling and rebounding is the path to success and the path to righteousness. We have to tell this to ourselves. We have to tell this to our children. There are challenges in life, there are defeats in life, there are setbacks in life, there are disappointments in life, there are moral and spiritual failings in life. We are imperfect human beings. But the trick is to bounce back up and try it again. Don't allow yourself to be dragged down by yesterday's failures. Don't be frozen by your anxieties about tomorrow. Get up and do what you can do today, even if it's not perfect. One author put it this way, the imperfect book that gets published is better than the perfect book that never leaves your computer. A 20-minute walk that I do is better than a four-mile run that I don't do. Or the good old layman's terms, a half a loaf is better than no loaf at all. You're all familiar with the story of Joseph. Joseph lives this, this life filled with drama. His story takes four entire portions in the Torah. 
Now he's brought down to Egypt. You know that story. The brothers will sell him as a slave to Egypt. And he works at first in the house of Potiphar. Remember the story? He's there and Potiphar's wife kind of has her eyes on Joseph. And she tries to seduce him. She tries every womanly way to try to get Joseph to succumb to her advances. And the Medrash takes over the story and gives us some details over here. Every day she would come to Joseph and she would say, I want you. And he would say, no, I can't engage in this. And she would come the next day wearing different clothing, making different overtures, different perfumes. She tried every possible way. This went on one day, a second day, a week, two weeks, a month. It continues to happen. One day the Medrash says the wife of Potiphar comes to Joseph and says, Joseph, you know and I know that you're going to break. It's not possible for you to keep this up. You're going to give in. So you might as well give in now and enjoy it. Joseph says to her, Mrs. Potiphar, you're right. I can't withstand this too much longer. You're getting to me. But I'm going to hold out for one more day. I'm just going to hold out for one more day. And that I could do. And the next day he said the same thing. i just going to hold out for one more day. He knew he wasn't perfect. He knew he had the weakness like any other man. But he also knew that if he had to find the strength for one more day, he could do it. Just one more day. And he remained the righteous man he was in that story because he held out just for one more day. And that's why he goes down in Jewish history as Yosef HaTzadik. It wasn't because he didn't have desires. It wasn't because he was perfect. It was because he knew that with the struggles he was facing, he can get through one more day, one more step. These are the lessons for us to internalize in our imperfect lives and our imperfect world. Let's do what we can to strengthen our relationships, to learn, to grow, to become more spiritual and more Jewishly involved. Now, early on in our forefather Abraham's career as the first Jew to walk the face of the earth, God says something very interesting to him. He says, His halich lefanai tamim. Walk before me, in English translation, and be perfect. Now that goes against everything I just said to you. First commandment to Abraham, be perfect. I just stood up here and I told you, you're not perfect. And the answer is the operative phrase in that statement is, walk before me. You walk the walk. Just take those steps. And by virtue of walking, of taking whatever steps you can, then you're perfect in my eyes. Not in your eyes. You're a human. You're not going to be perfect. But I will consider you perfect. Why? Because you took the walk. Because you tried. Because you didn't sit back and said, I can't. You didn't sit back and say, I'm afraid of failure. You took the effort to make the walk. And if you do that, God says to us, then you're perfect, as perfect as a human being is going to get. You see, Judaism is about the process. It's not just the product. It's about your effort, not just your success. It's about the journey, not just the destination. 
To be a Jew is Yisrael. It means one who struggles with God. Aspiring and striving is what authentic spirituality is all about. It's not all easy. There are struggles that we're going to have. It's not incumbent upon us to finish the job, but that doesn't free you from starting to do the best you can. And it is this philosophy of not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good, of doing the best you can today, of always getting back up and continuing the walk that enables us to rise to the heights of our potential and achieve true greatness. I'm going to conclude with one story. For those that have asked of me of the past talks I have given to give you a Kleenex warning, Several years ago, a young man by the name of Dovi Mandelbaum he had this extra step, skip in his step as he walked towards a Jerusalem apartment of Rabbi Erez Mishakovsky. Rabbi Erez Mishakovsky was the Rosh Hashiva, he was the headmaster of a Torah school that he had attended years earlier. And the reason he was in such good spirits as he was going to the home of Rabbi Erez Mishakovsky was because he was going to give over an invitation to his own wedding. Dovi was getting married. And the tradition in some circles in Israel was that before you wedding, you hand-delivered an invitation to the headmaster that inspired you most in life. Interesting, nice tradition, nice custom. And he wanted to do it. Rabbi Mishakovsky happened to have been the headmaster of a school that he had gone to years earlier. It wasn't a regular school. It wasn't a regular yeshiva. It was a yeshiva that had the children in there, the students in there, perhaps couldn't sit and concentrate 12 hours a day in front of a Talmud. Maybe they can put in three hours, maybe four hours, but they needed something else during the day. And so this Rabbi Mishakovsky had a school in which it was part school, part job counseling, part uh, therapy sessions perhaps. He took care of these kids. And Dovi was part of that school and the school had a tremendous impact on his life. Now, after he finished this particular school, he ended up meeting up with Chabad. And he ended up becoming this Lubavitcher Chassid, a regular Lubavitcher Chassid, and no one really knew that he had originally struggled with his studies. But he never forgot. He never forgot his years in this school and the contribution that Rabbi Mishakovsky's school had on him and the impact on his life. So there he is paying this customary visit. He rings the bell. Rabbi Mishakovsky answers the door, pleasantly surprised to see his former student from years ago there. And he explains the reason. I'm engaged. I'm getting married. And I wanted to bring an invitation that would be so meaningful if you attended my wedding. Come into the house. Talk to me. Tell me how your life has been the last few years. He tells him. So he says, so you became Chabad? Yeah, I became Chabad. Very nice. Very nice. He opens the invitation, he's staring at the invitation, and the girl, she's also Chabad, she's also Chabad. Oh, very nice, right? Do you know if your future mother-in-law ever visited New York and went to see the Lubavitcher Rebbe and got a dollar from the Rebbe? I never kind of asked that question. I, I don't know if you, if you're not familiar with that part of the story, it's that the Rebbe would give out dollar bills on every Sunday to anyone that would come to see him, it would be a, the Rebbe would give you a blessing. 
And he would also give a dollar bill that you should give to charity. And this way, when two Jews meet, the Rebbe said, a third person should benefit from it, from this encounter. Now, people wanted to hold on to a dollar bill from the Rebbe, so they exchanged it. They took out a dollar or five or 10 or 20 from their own pocket, gave that to charity, and they kept their Rebbe dollars because a dollar bill held on the hands of the Lubavitcher Rebbe was a blessing that you wanted to have. So here he is being asked by this non-Chabad rabbi of his if his future mother-in-law ever got a dollar from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He says, I, I don't know. Can you ask her? Sure, next time I see her, I'll ask her. Okay, let me know what she says. Next time he's by the house of his bride, he asks his mother-in-law, by the way, have you ever gone to New York to get a dollar from the Lubavitcher Rebbe? She says, certainly. Well, he has the answer to this question, certainly, okay. He goes back to his rabbi's house and he said, I asked the question, she said, yeah. And he says, you know, I have a story to tell you that's worth a million dollars. But because I really like you, I'm only gonna charge you $10,000. The kid Dovey says, it's really nice. I don't have $10,000. So he says, you know what? I'll make a better offer. I'm going to attend your wedding, but I'd like an invitation to your Shever Brachas as well. Invite me to any of the Shever Brachas. Seven, seven days after the wedding, there's a party every night. Invite me to one of them, and I'll tell my story there. You got yourself a deal. Well, Dovey and Tirch's wedding was beautiful. Beautiful wedding. Rabbi Mishkovsky was there at the wedding, danced with his student at the wedding, and then gets the invitation for a Shever Brachas. It was the last Shever Brachas. It was held in a park, a large park in Jerusalem. The groom's uncle set up this big barbecue, and everyone knew that somehow Mishkovsky is getting up and he's telling a story, so they brought a microphone, a speaker, to hear this million-dollar story. The time comes, Rabbi Mishkovsky stands up, and this is the story that he tells at Dovi and Tirza's Shever Brachas in a park in Jerusalem. He says, 25 years ago, when I married my wife, Chani, we knew when we were dating and when we got engaged the life we wanted to live. We were both on the exact same page. She wanted someone that was going to sit and study Torah all day. That's what she dreamed of in life. I wanted to sit and study Torah all day. I wanted to marry someone that would want that. It's a perfect match. She would work, and I would study Torah. It was a simple life. It was a stress-free life. It wasn't a wealthy life, but we didn't want that. It was uncomplicated. It was blissful. It was beautiful. I chose a kolel in Netanya. A kolel is a house of study where people, after they get married, if they want to study, that's where they sit and study. This particular kolel, the building where he studied, was adjacent to a high school. The high school had a high school program and a post-high school program, a Beit HaMedrash program. Life was great. And then I started noticing that some of the kids in the post-high school program were really getting into things that they shouldn't be getting into. The school had a problem, they had a crisis. And the principal of that particular school handled it by simply saying to these kids, you can't come back here anymore. Kick them out. I had a problem with that. It just bothered me. 
Instead of working through their issues and finding out what's bothering them, what do you mean you kick them out? It's easy to kick someone out. But the effect that it's going to have on their lives, are you really thinking through the consequences of your decision here? It bothered me. Although I didn't really know the principle, I had the chutzpah to go into his office and said, I think you're making a terrible mistake. How do you kick kids out of a yeshiva? Kids don't want to study Torah, but they're getting into mischief. Find out what, what's bothering them. But he didn't have time for me or for anything I had to say. He totally ignored me. So I decided I was going to do something about it. I rented this little apartment. And I told these kids that they're welcome to come there, that I would teach them for an hour a day. And then that hour became two hours. And then I tried to find them jobs that they can do in the afternoon. And little by little, I found myself caring for these kids. But I was still in cola. I was still studying for the other hours. But then I needed to raise money to pay for the apartment. And the program continued, and more kids started joining. And I really needed to put time into this. And this continued to grow and to grow and to become an occupation that was taking him away from the lifestyle that I wanted. My wife started complaining, like, what's going on? We made up. <laughs> you were going to devote your life to Torah study. Now half the day you're taking care of the kids. She knew the value of what I was doing, but this is not the arrangement we had. Months went by, and the stress this was causing our marriage was getting worse and worse and worse. I was afraid that if I walked away from it and went back to the deal that I made, full-time Torah study, which is what I dreamt of all my life, and it was my wife's dream, and it was the arrangement we had, but if I went back to that, no one would take over. And these kids would be lost. But is it right? Is it right for me to take this on myself? Is it right for my wife? Am I doing justice here? I was in total turmoil. Finally, one day, I realized I can't go on like this. We needed to resolve this issue one way or the other. I was either going to go all in or all out. Living like this was not working. I told my wife, I'm taking a day off today. The two of us are going away. We're going to take a ride. We're not coming home until we figure this out together as a team. I'm either going to decide together with you that this is wrong and I'm going back to my life of all day study, or we're going to decide that this is what I'm doing for my life. But we're going to do it together as a team, and we're going to talk it out, and we're going to debate it, we're going to argue it, but we're coming back home tonight on one page. This won't continue like this. We drove as far north as Park Haryardane when we decided to stop for a picnic lunch. We sat down on the grass. It was a few feet away from this natural pool in which streamed from a waterfall that was coming from an upper park. I sat facing the water. Hani had her back to the water. And there we are in cold silence, wondering how do we resolve this? Where does the discussion begin? And how are we going to come to a solution here? As we start our conversation, suddenly, in the corner of my eye, I spot something. The color was red. I saw red. I saw red coming down the falls. This red bundle. It could have been a backpack, a red backpack, coming down the waterfalls. 
but I don't think it was a backpack. Well, my eye is deceiving me. Am I seeing things? And I immediately leaped on my feet and I jumped into the water with my suit and shoes and wallet and everything on me and swam immediately to this red bundle. The first bob to the surface was within my grasp and I grabbed hold of this little girl, this toddler. In my arms, she was flaying, gasping, coughing, spitting out water, but she was alive. I staggered out of the water, gripping this bundle. It was very shaken, I was shaken. The child was terrified, of course. Hani quickly wrapped the picnic blanket around this toddler, and after a few pats on the back, she seemed to be back to herself. The whole thing happened in the blink of an eye. It was so quick we realized that the fa family of the child is up on the upper park and didn't realize that their toddler had crawled to the waterfalls and we don't see any screaming coming from up there, which means they don't even know. So Hani and I immediately begin the trek to the upper terrace of the park in my wet, sopping clothes. We got up there and we see this large family spread out with blankets, lots of kids, must have been cousins all together, eating, talking, laughing, and enjoying themselves, and clearly having no inkling that the little girl in red was not amongst her siblings and her cousins. And here I am walking with my red bundle in my hand, and suddenly one notices and another, and they all turn and they all look in horror, transfixed, unable to move at first, the child's mother becomes hysterical as she grasps the enormity of what just took place and the tragedy of what could have been. She begins shrieking and couldn't hear any words, just screaming. And she runs towards me into this child and grabs the child from my arms and holds her and kisses her. And gradually she becomes more back to herself and she starts thanking God, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, starts thanking me, starts thanking Hani. And she begins saying, how can I thank you? How can I thank you? You saved my child's life. How can I thank you? And then she tells another child of ours, run to the car and I want you to get my purse. And I say, oh, come, don't, don't, you're not, don't, don't give me money, please. This is the greatest mitzvah I could have possibly done. You're not, don't, don't, don't ruin it by giving me a check. She gets her purse. She takes out from her purse a single dollar. And she wants to hand me a dollar. Now, lest anyone think that she thought that the reward for this act of heroism was a dollar, she says to the rabbi, I want you to know this is the most precious thing I own. This is a dollar I received from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I want you to have it. I want to give it to you. So I said, I don't want a reward from you. I don't want to take anything from you. I did what I was supposed to do. And she kept on insisting that I take it. So I said to her, I want you to listen to me. I'm not a Chabadnik. Though the Rebbe wasn't my Rebbe, I wasn't a Chassid of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. This dollar has no value to me. It's just a dollar. 
But for you, as you said yourself, it's the most precious thing you own. Don't give it away. Hold on to it. You hold it. You keep it. And at that point, she looks at me as a Jewish mother can. And she says, no, you will listen to me. <laughs> you will take this dollar from the Rebbe, and I promise you, that it will bring you clarity, it will bring you peace, it will bring you blessings, it will bring strength into your life, it will change the rest of your life. And with that, she puts the dollar in my hand. As Mishikovsky is telling this story to Shevar Brachas, he takes out from his pocket the dollar bill. On it, it's written from the Holy Admir of Lubavitch, Shavat 5751. And he says, I haven't parted with this dollar ever since. Every day of the week it's with me except for Shabbat. I always carry it with me. Now you may think, he says, that I was the savior of that little girl, but that's not the true story. You see, what brought my wife and me to the park that day was this last-ditch attempt to find an answer to our dilemma. And when that baby fell into the waterfall, it became so clear that that was the answer. Our mission was to devote ourselves to saving lives. You can sit in yeshiva from today to tomorrow. You can study 24 hours a day. But what's needed is to go out there and help people, save people. Moreover, as my wife observed, the fact that the response to my action was to be given a dollar by the Lubavitcher Rebbe who devoted his entire life and leadership to bringing Jewish soul back to their roots that reinforced what the answer for us that we were seeking was. My calling in life was to save others. An unmistakable sign tumbled from the heavens along with a dollar from Brooklyn attesting to this. And it was because of that moment that we moved. We packed our bags. We moved to Jerusalem. We opened the yeshiva for boys who needed a different approach. I took my students from Netanya with me, and we started a school. And your groom today, Dovi, was one of our first. As for today's bride, Tirza, I must say that it was nice to see you the other night wearing a white dress instead of the red one you were wearing the first time we met. As everyone at the party sat in stunned silence, the bride's mother speaks up, and she says, and kavod harav, honored rabbi, it's nice to see you in dry clothes too. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, perfect lives, it's a myth. It doesn't exist, not in this world. When Mashiach comes, God willing, soon we will revisit the question. But until then, let's just focus and truly meditate on this one simple statement of truth. Life doesn't have to be perfect to be wonderful. Thank you very much. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.